0: Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that, are, that you're a God that's not distant and aloof to the raw and the, and the true things that really we wrestle with, the complexity of, of life, the complexity of us as human beings, that you don't stand far away or far back from that, but that you enter in through the person and work of your son, Jesus. And so we just pray, Spirit, that you would, um, you would speak, that you would comfort, that you would encourage, that you would convict, and that you would challenge us as you only know that we need it. And we ask all these things, the only name that matters in Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, if you've been tracking with us in this series, there's a key hinge in the book of Mark today where Jesus now shifts from power and authority and making it clear who he is and where his authority comes from to now he starts a string of teachings and he's gonna speak into kind of cultural touch points For his disciples, key topics that were being discussed and debated at the time. And we're going to see some overlap today. And so we're going to be addressing just one of Jesus' teachings around marriage, sexuality, and divorce. And now it's no secret, if we've been paying attention at all, that culture's views of marriage, of family, of sexuality, of the pursuit of happiness generally, have changed radically not just over kind of the last 100 years, but specifically over the last generation that has left us with many competing views of identity, who we are, personhood, what makes up who we are, and how do we pin singleness and sexuality and romance and marriage? How do we understand those things in relationship to who we actually are? And in fact, in our culture today, rather than have our relationship status, whatever that is, unmarried, single, divorced, whatever the case is, rather than have that be, one part of who we are, our relationship status, has become the center of who we are. It has become the very thing upon which we build our identity, not just an aspect of our identity. And what we've seen radically in the past generation is a shift from what we do, something that we do, or how we act, to who we are. And we have built who we are on the foundation of human sexuality and romance and relationship status. And if you're paying attention at all, the teleprompter of our culture kind of the sermon that is preached week to week, day to day, in all of the different medium that we find ourselves influenced by, your sexual desires or identity and your relationship status, they don't just define you, they determine you. They define you, they determine you, and they should be at the center of how you live and who you are. Now, I'll save you the bigger history lesson But I'll just catch you up on how we got here. Because it's very important to understand not just where we are, but how did we get where we are. This is my jam, by the way. This late Western modern thing that we're in, and this historical thing. So I will will make this quick, I promise. Hopefully, probably. Our late modern Western culture is really just a Frankenstein mash-up of a few things starting with the Enlightenment in the 1700s, so we're going like 400 years back, which really redefined our view of authority and progress. That was quickly followed up by Romanticism of the 1800s, which gave us our freedom of expression, and it pinned beauty and romantic ideas in the subjective eye of the beholder. So Romanticism gave us this idea of individualism, subjective beauty, but also subjective views of morality, subjective views of what is truly right or wrong, what is good and what is bad. That was followed up by a German cat named Sigmund Freud's groundbreaking work in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis in the 1800s which was a major shift, not just in how to understand personhood, but in a shift from understanding human behavior, from what we do to human identity, it's who we are. And Freud and much of what came out of the psychoanalysis that followed him shifted that. And then finally, right off the heels of that, we saw the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s, which did a lot of things, some good and most poorly, But what it did mainly was call for a clean and severe violent break from all things past. All values, all beliefs and traditions are archaic and at worst repressive. We must abandon the past and develop a new ethic. A new set of values, a new set of beliefs and traditions so that we can be progressive so that we can live a free, self-expressive life and ethic built on our freedom, however we define it. Now, what is the end run of some of these movements? That was 400 years in like five minutes. You're welcome. But what is the end run of some of this? Well, without an objective foundation for identity, who we are, without an objective foundation for morality, what is considered right and wrong, Without an objective foundation for authority, who gets to tell us what is right and wrong, we today culturally in our late modern Western culture have become our own authority to determine both our morality and shape our own identity. And you thought history was boring. But that is why we are where we are. These are some of the key ideological spiritual, existential things that have happened to how we approach identity formation. And today, in our culture, if there is anything that is true about us, our culture is left with a severe case of mistaken identity. Not even knowing where to look or who gets the right to tell us who we are and why. So, what do we do? Well, we are image-bearing creatures. We must make ourselves after something so we go and look for other objects and value systems to shape our identity off of. As small reflective mirrors, we go and just try to find something because we can't help ourselves. There's something unique about us as image bearers that we must reflect something in order to give ourselves value. So if we don't know who gets to tell us that, why they have the authority to tell us that and what even is considered right wrong good true and beautiful we are left kind of floating around in this dead space without a true foundation for identity formation so largely what has happened what is what have we looked to we've looked not outside of us but inside of us as an individualistic culture as an autonomous culture built on self-expression and discovering your truth. What we have done is we've actually looked to things like sexuality and romance and our relationship status and our sexual feelings or preferences or orientations to be the key source of identity formation and ultimately the target of satisfaction and fulfillment. And that's where we are today. Now, the question we wanna ask as we read this text is how does Jesus speak into some of this complexity? because these are very complex and we are not going to get into an exhaustive um, coverage at all today. And we're probably already gonna go long, okay? So forgive me. But just know that this winter, we're gonna have a workshop, a a seminar setting on all things sexuality, singleness, dating, marriage, and all things LGBTQ. We try to do this every couple years and make sure that we're creating a space where dialogue and conversation can happen, but ultimately we're doing it with an open Bible and an open mind. And so we're gonna be doing that this winter, so keep your eyes open for that. If you have any questions, you will, that come out of today, that is a really good space for us to tackle some of that, okay? So take good notes. But how does Jesus speak into this, the complexity of this? Well, he does it very sensitively. He does it very truthfully. And he does it very Jesus-y. This is just full of love. Like He just oozes the love in the way that he addresses this as he speaks on sexuality and identity and marriage and, and divorce, okay? So we'll jump in, chapter 10, we'll read the first 12 verses, then we'll back up and unpack some stuff for us. So watch how it goes, Mark 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as it was his custom, he began to teach them. And the Pharisees, this is key, came up, and in order to test him, in order to test him, it's like quiz Jesus time, which I don't know, if you ever pay attention, doesn't go well for them ever, okay? Test Jesus time, here we go. We're gonna get him this time. We're gonna pin him. Hey, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's loaded, we'll get to it in a sec. Well, he answered them, well, what did Moses command you? It's a very Jesus-y answer, I love it. And they said, well, I mean, Moses did allow a man to write a certificate of divorce to their wife and send her away. And Jesus said to them, no, 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 you're missing it. Be- it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you that commandment. But from the beginning of what Moses wrote, he's, he's like, no, no, not that text, guys. I know you like to use that one. There's a different one I'm referring to. And he hyperlinks them back further into Genesis. He says, from the very beginning of creation, the DNA upon which all life is, is built upon, God made them male and female. Therefore, because of this, because of this image bearing quality, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one, one flesh, one person, holistically. So they are no longer two, but are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In verse 10, then they left and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Now we've seen this over the course of the series, right? Jesus will often teach something out loud and then they have a smaller context where they're at the dinner table and they're going, hey Jesus, so the Pharisees were really ticked today about what you said. Uh, can we just double back on that? So think like sermon from Jesus, Bible study with Jesus. Okay, that's, what, that's what's happening here. And they're talking about this matter, this matter and he said to them, just to underline it, to make sure they did not miss it. Whoever divorces his wife, marries another woman, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. All right, what is going on here? Well, look at how in no uncertain terms, Jesus speaks about the permanence and the oneness of marriage there, okay? That's really important to just hang in our mind as we look. Now compare that with some of the things that float around today. Like, here's a quote from uh, Adam and Williamson in a book actually from 1979, which is quite dated if you think about it, uh, uh, a book on divorce. It'll be up here for you. Watch this. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and their lifestyles. Sorry. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life you must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is is especially easy for two persons to simply grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, underline, this is the key, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. That sounds radically different than what Jesus just said. I also saw a New York Times article this week as I was studying and it said, the happy marriage is the me marriage. Happy marriage is the me marriage. In modern relationships, people are looking for partners who make their lives more interesting and who help each of them attain valued goals. Now, did you catch the underlying value holding up marriage here? That's just two quotes. I mean, it's everywhere, we could keep going, we won't but did you, did you catch what was actually holding up marriage for our culture? Fulfillment, self-actualization, right? Self-fulfillment. If it is no longer fulfilling for who? Me, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go find it elsewhere. I'm gonna go find it in a different relationship. I'm gonna go find it in a different experience. I'm gonna move to a different province, a different city. I'm gonna find it in another place. Whatever it is, if I have determined that this is no longer fulfilling, don't even need a reason, really, but it's just not fulfilling for me, it's my truth, that's it. I can just get out of the marriage. The underlying belief here, family, that we have to not miss is that the purpose of romance, the purpose of sexuality, the purpose of marriage is self-fulfillment and self-actualization. Now, no surprise that has left an entire generation not doing very well in the marriage department or in the sexuality department or in even how to approach romance whatsoever. So that set us up for really the dissolution, the dissolving of marriage built on anything other than my own self-fulfillment. So it's given rise to a whole generation and a half searching for the one. And if it's not the one who only always loves me and is from twilight, because how can you compete with a vegan vampire that just loves and cares... Baby, baby, nothing ever upsets me. It's like, yeah, baby, like, and they're not the one. Hardship, not the one, not fulfilling. Health, health risks, cancer strikes, financial crisis, family members die, suffering enters in. I lose my job, not fulfilling. For any reason whatsoever, a whole generation looking for compatibility which is a myth, PS. Chemistry and compatibility is not the top value in a marriage or in a romantic relationship. Do you know why? Because sometimes there's no chemistry and sometimes you are completely incompatible. And so if compatibility or a vegan vampire just loving me is the criteria upon which I'm gonna build my commitment to the other, In the relationship, it is bound to fail. There's a built-in exit strategy that is built on me. It's a built-in exit strategy. Whenever it's not fulfilling for me, I blow the whistle, I call a timeout, and I go to another team. Now, while it is certainly true, and we'll finish on this point at the end, while it is certainly true that divorce is a necessary and healthy step at times, in very sensitive, very specific cases. The framing of marriage in our culture not only provides just an exit strategy, but it almost guarantees the disintegration of any marriage that feels at any moment for any reason unfulfilling, which is every marriage. And all the married people said, amen. We can be honest, we're gonna be honest at Reach Montreal. If you say that at every moment, all the time, your spouse is just my bugaboo, just so fulfilling all the time, Mm, you're lying. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to your your partner. When we're honest, there's unfulfilling things in every single human relationship, not just romantic ones. So if fulfillment and self-actualization is the point, we really are being set up for failure. We need a better playbook. And thankfully Jesus offers us one. The word of God offers us a much better backdrop and foundation to build not just romantic relationships, but all relationships altogether. Now, some of us understand this because it's, it's sensitive to us, because we're either children of divorce, um, we've either, some of us have experienced divorce ourselves, or many of us are just still carrying around hurt and baggage from past relationships, whether it was five years ago or 35 years ago. These things are deeply personal, They're deeply emotional, very complex things. But since 1970, we've understood this disintegration because we've watched it happen in front of us and we've all felt it to some degree. Divorce has doubled in the last 40 years. 72% of adults in 1970 in North America were married. Today, it is less than 50%. We're losing hope in marriage. We're losing the why of marriage. We have a whole generation of millennials and Gen Z who are like, no, we haven't seen this go well at all. So we're just going to kind of pause the thing on marriage and do other stuff. And I don't actually blame them because there's been a serious baggage that has come with living through and experiencing divorce at all levels of it happening in relationships. So what happens? Well, we lose hope in marriage in and of itself. So we end up cohabitating more and marrying less. Today 50% of all couples live together before marriage. Now here's the logic. It's like, well, we kind of need to like test the car out before you buy it. So let's figure out if we're compatible. Let's figure out like how much craft dinner we're really willing to make together, right? And, like, what you smell like in the morning, and do you shower, and when do you, and maybe not enough, and right, like, it's like, let's just figure this out. Let's cohabitate, let's test it out, let's see if we're compatible, let's get some financial security first, because why bring a dog, especially, but a human being after the dog into this relationship if we don't have financial security? So, let's get a condo, let's get a bit, right? So, so you go, go down the logic, and you're like, okay, I can see the logic. That kind of makes sense if you track with it. Is it working? Well, statistically, and these are just the facts, cohabitating couples have a much higher rate of divorce than those who do not live together before marriage. And married couples, as opposed to unmarried cohabitating couples, make 40% more as far as kind of gross income than unmarried people. And the second marriage, the divorce rate of the second marriage is actually twice as high as the first one, and then it just keeps going, cascading effect. So statistically, this whole thing of like, well, let's figure it out if we're, if we're um, compatible and let's just kind of test this thing out because like, hey, how, what, what could hurt? Well, that's what hurts. The actual longevity and health and foundation of the marriage long-term, that's what hurts. That's what suffers. In Canada, one of 309 adults are either divorced or have experienced divorce in their families. That's a lot when you actually think about it. 40% of Canadian marriages end in divorce. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of marriages. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people in those marriages. 1.2 million divorced Canadians have children. And there's a lot of studies now on uh, children of divorce, C-O-D, which I am one. And children of divorce end up having a lot of behavioral issues and emotional things to work through because of that severing of their family of origins. There's increased impulsive behavioral issues, The substance abuse rates are much higher and at younger ages for experimenting with alcohol and drugs. Much lower academic performance across the board and an overall lower mental and emotional health for children of divorce. So this is not a minor thing that we're kind of like, well, hey, Christians, we just kind of see it differently than the culture. So it's actually a pretty major building block of our entire society because it's what the family is built on and what the family leads to is a whole culture and society. And now we're dealing with some of the dysfunction, and brokenness that has come from a story about marriage that is failing us. And that's what we have to understand. As, as active listeners and learners in our culture, we have to pay attention to the story that our culture is telling about romance and marriage and sexuality, And then we have to understand what the story is and then understand what the story of the Bible is, the values that are laid out in the Bible and understand that we are always going to have the truer and better story, amen? That we're always gonna have better news than anything that we can come up with in culture, even if it's not evil, even if it's just pragmatic or just kind of makes sense because it's like a utilitarian decision that our culture has made. Not even bad things, but we have to pay attention to those things undergirding the stories. Now back into the text. The Pharisees come to test Jesus again. If you've been paying attention throughout Mark, the Pharisees do this all the time. All throughout the gospels, we see this kind of ongoing ideological friction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And this will help us understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. If you remember back in chapter eight, they do the same thing. And the word for testing here in Greek is is interesting. It's laying a trap. Okay, so it's not like, they're not coming for a genuine dialogue. Okay, they're not actually coming, but Jesus, we would love to hear your position on this extremely sensitive topic. They're coming laying a trap for him because they just wanna pin him and reject him. They're not genuinely asking what he thinks or his approach to marriage and divorce, but they're trapping him in a lose-lose. And I would just say we all know people like this. I do. Maybe you are people like this. And when you ask a question on a key cultural touch point, you're not actually listening. You don't actually care what they're saying. You're just waiting for your turn to talk so that you can pin them on how right do they lean on this issue, how left do they lean, and then gotcha, and then I can talk and tell you why you're wrong and criticize you. And I actually think COVID has brought this out of our nasty hearts more than it was there before. Because we just want to just kind of be myopic and narrow and push things to a binary all the time. Everything's either or. There's no sense of nuance or complexity on any issue whatsoever. And Jesus doesn't hang out there. That's what I love about it. They come to trap him and he smells it from a mile away. He knows exactly what they're trying to do. And they're waiting to see if Jesus leans right or left on this issue. And this isn't hypothetical. This is a real thing in Jesus's day. So I'll give you the historical backdrop really quickly. There's a real debate happening in the first century around divorce. And there's two very distinct schools of thought. One that would be kind of right-leaning, conservative on the topic, and one more left-leaning, maybe progressive on the topic of divorce. And there's a big debate on the Mosaic Law and what it says about divorce. Now, the right-leaning school was led by a rabbi called Shammai, and that conservative view was, well, divorce is not ideal. We want to avoid it at all costs, but if there's sexual impropriety or adultery, we will permit divorce. That was the right-leaning kind of conservative view. There was like a left-leaning progressive view led by a rabbi called Hillel, the school or house of Hillel, and His view was literally any reason whatsoever that you are fed up with your wife, divorce her. There was a saying that circulated at the time, if she burns the bread, divorce. Now legally, it was not allowed for a woman to divorce her husband. So there was a big gotcha because men could then just run around and do whatever they want. Adultery didn't apply to them because they could write a certificate of divorce at any time and say, sorry, sweetie, I'm done with you. And what they're arguing about is what are they supposed to do with some of those Mosaic teaching? Now, we hear similar things today. Whether it's the right-leaning, conservative side of things or the left-leaning, progressive side. But a lot of times, you're just like, "What, what happened? What happened to us? It's like, well, we just fell out of love. As if love can just be something we fall into in the first place. I fell in love, and if I fall in love and it's something that happens to me, guess what can happen as well? Well, I can fall out of it. You hear things, well, I'm just not attracted to them. not the same person I married. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. That's called life. And guess what, sweetie? You're probably not as attractive as you once were either. A little repentance for some of us right there. <laughs> A little spare tire that we gotta kind of work off. You know what I'm saying? You don't, Okay. Or, yet man, it just ended because I deserve to be happy. They're not the same person I married. Or my favorite is irreconcilable differences. And that actually goes on the legal document. Which marriage is full of? I don't know. Married people? Irreconcilable differences that take years to reconcile over, right? Like differences to work out over a lifetime of like, nah, I don't know about you on this one, right? Like we're going to have to explore this together. So culturally, there's lots of different ideas floating around about divorce. Then there's other things too that divorcees or those who are unmarried or single, there's a stigma attached to it because being unmarried means being unwanted. That if you're single, it's like, well, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? Does someone not want you? Like, why aren't you married yet? When are kids coming? When, right, like it just, and it never stops. And that happens in the church. That you look at a single person who's like over the age of, I don't know what age you think getting married is good at, but it's like over the age of 25, and it's like, hmm, what happened to you? Why are you not married yet? Why are you not wed right? So all these things kind of seep around. And Jesus honestly doesn't touch either of those things. He corrects both of those things. And it's amazing what he does here. Now the specific law that's happening and they're debating about, we're not going to turn there, is in Deuteronomy 24. It's actually something that happened in the Torah and the schools of Shammai and Hillel are arguing about how to apply that. Christians, we don't argue over how to apply Bible verses, do we? We didn't do that over COVID at all, I don't think, right? All right, so nothing has changed. That's good, encouraging to know. But they're arguing about a very specific case law in Deuteronomy, and it says this, I'll just tell it to you. If a husband finds anything indecent in his wife, that's the key, that's the loophole right there, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and if she then goes and becomes the wife of another man, and if that guy dies, then she cannot remarry the first guy. Which, if you opened that on your like morning Devo, you'd be like, mm, Lord, yes. So edifying for my soul. What a great Bible verse. Why is that not on camp t-shirts, you know? Super important to understand the context, though, of what is happening in a text like that. Did you notice the key word that Moses is speaking to? If, if, if. It's a situational thing that's happening. Now, I'll save you all the geeky Old Testament stuff, right? Because so if you know, if you've been around, you know I have a three quarters of a PhD in Old Testament law. I'll save it for you. But this is an example of a certain type of law in the Old Testament called case law. It's civil law. Not all laws are equal in the Torah, not all laws are the same. Some of them apply to very different things and contextualizing them is super important. But case laws are things that were permitted legally within Israel as a nation in their cultural moment. And usually there was a precedent for it. So the reason why a case law was put in is because something had happened and they were like, well, we gotta correct that and not permit abuse or, or overuse of things to happen in our community. So there's examples in scripture around polygamy. Slavery, property laws, extortion, robbery, theft, what to do if someone hops your fence and grabs one of your ox. Like you are just like, mm, praise the Lord, yes, amen. Okay, but those are case laws. Those are situational things that actually happened in the real life of Israel and they had to then build some guardrails around it to say here's how we're gonna understand how to operate in an ordered society. Those are case laws. This one that they're referring to is a case law. And I love when Jesus says to them, what did Moses say? And they go to the case law. It's as if they went to the exception of the rule because they think they are the exception to the rule. And Jesus just ignores that they quoted it because he's like, no, 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 you and I both know that's not the one I was talking about. Uh, We weren't going to the exception of the rule, the case law that only is allowed in certain situations to then tell me why divorce is okay. And Jesus just doesn't play the game. He's like, no, no, I was talking about way back at the beginning. What's the ideal of marriage? Not the exception to the rule when somebody is being a bonehead in a marriage, but what's the ideal design and God's intention for marriage? Now, we can't unpack the implications of Deuteronomy 24, but what is beautiful about it, church, and we have to hear this. This is a big point that Jesus is making that that law was actually in place, the Mosaic law put that one in place to protect vulnerable women. This actually stopped women from being exploited and treated like chattel and married over and over and over and over again for whatever man wanted to use her as property or for his own sexual pleasure. And if there's anything you need to hear is that the entire scope of scripture is that is God making sure that the voice of the voiceless is heard and protected and cared for because he is the God who sees the the widows and the orphans and the abandoned and the foreigners and the strangers and the aliens and protects them. The context of the law is so much more beautiful than we have time for, but it's actually not allowing the society at the time to treat women as property and exploit them for sexual gain and self-fulfilling reasons. And it was very countercultural in the ancient Near East. You would, might, might even say it was progressive for the cultural time. Very radical. And Jesus is pointing that out. So Jesus is like, hey, what did Moses say, boys? You know this. You know the word. You're always quoting it to us. Come and tell me what it says. And they quote the wrong verse. I just love it. Such a Jesus y thing to do. They're like, eh, wrong verse, boys. And he pulls them back further. But he's saying, no, 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 you're taking an exception to the rule, a concession. And he and he's saying, like, Moses permitted that. He didn't celebrate it, he didn't command it, he didn't even teach it. He permitted it. And why? Why did Jesus say? Because of the hardness of your heart. Not because it's like, yeah, this is a good idea. Divorce is awesome. He's like, No, 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 it's because of you, it's because of me. It's because of the brokenness and self, selfishness of our own heart, that Moses even had to do that because if not, in the society at the time, we would treat women as physical property and objects for us to use and abuse whenever we like. So men, I'm talking to you. It's no different today, church. And that is God's heartbeat through this. That is what Jesus is expressing here. So the Pharisees go, hey, do you agree with the conservatives or the liberals on this one, Jesus? And Jesus goes, God. Love it. Which is, there's a lesson in this. Is there not, church? So much of the dumpster fire of debate in our culture and our churches is solved by looking back at God's word, understanding the context of it, meditating on it, applying it to ourselves first and then getting out and applying it in community. Amen? That's just a good lesson. Conservatives, liberals, God. (laughs) Then he keeps going and he's like, okay, let me explain this to you because you guys are daft. You guys are thick. He moves on and he says, well, it's because of the hardness of your heart. Verse five. Verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them image bearers, male and female. Makes a distinction. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, bound to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but they're one. And what therefore God has joined, let no one for any reason whatsoever pull apart. This is radical. Jesus is taking the seriousness of marriage and the permanence of it so much more serious than they did and that we do. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're missing the forest for the trees. And he brings them all the way back to Genesis 1. Real quick, two verses that Jesus uses here. Genesis 1.27, it won't be up here, and, and Genesis 2.24. And the first is that, um, created he, that God created all things and it was good. And there's function to all things. God tells us what the telos, purpose, and function of all things are. And right in the middle of that is what? Humanity. Male and female. There's a function to us. And God gives us what that purpose and telos and function is. And he creates humanity in his image. The first thing God does when he creates humanity is does what? He blesses them. Now that's a God I want to get with. Amen? First thing he does, he creates them and then says, hey, get to work. Worship me. He's like, no, 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 no. Uh, create, creates them and then says, enjoy, bless, be fruitful, get on vocation together, go and, and enjoy one another, but also all of the garden that I've given you. Eat it up, just, just drink it, enjoy all of it. I love that. Live productive, full lives. That's our telos. That's the image-bearing quality that's in us. And notice that it's not we have the image of God. Sometimes that's talked about as like we have a spark of divine in us, which is again like floaty self-help stuff that just goes out there all the time by priestess Oprah and all of her cronies, right? But it's just like not a spark of divine in us. It's that we are collectively the image of God. That we are little mirrors reflecting the nature and character of who God is. That we reflect and represent God and that that's why we are created. That's the why behind the what of who we are. And you guys know the story, sin enters the picture, and what happens? Well, instead of reflecting God, what do they do? They reflect a different standard of what is right and wrong, good and true. So sin, we have to understand, is when we reflect something else or look to something not God to give us our identity. Do you know why this will always break us? Because nothing except God is built to bear the weight of our identity. So not bad things, Money, success, career, family, marriage, sexuality, all of those things, good things, beautiful things, until we try to build an entire identity on them and they crumble from under our feet because they cannot withstand the weight of personhood. And last, on this verse, notice that their identity is set before sexuality and romance is in the picture. Did you catch that? Your image bearers, You already are that. Now go and be fruitful and multiply. Go make love and eat food. Okay, their identity is set before sexuality, romance and marriage is in the picture. So just hear me, this is very important. To look for our identity in anything other than the one who gave it to us will disappoint and crush us. It will. And the Bible is coming at us saying, you don't need to find your identity because it's already given to you. How freeing is that? How life-giving is that? We don't need to go and work for our identity at all because the God who created all things tells us what our identity is and it's to reflect and enjoy and represent him. Beautiful, that is nothing short of the gospel from the very first chapter of the Bible church. That's the gospel that God has the right to tell us who we are that God gets to tell us what we build our identity on. And that is the most freeing, not repressive and oppressive, but most freeing, life-giving, fulfilling identity that we ever can imagine because we were created for him. That's good news. That is such good news. And today with sexuality in the picture and in the mix, of being in our identity. We have single, or, or married, or gay, or lesbian, or queer, or trans, or virgin, or divorced. We have these labels that float around that are setting us up for not just insecurity, but brokenness, and shame, and disappointment. We have a better and true story for what we should build our identity on, and it's right here. So, human beings, as image bearers, we're complex. We're embodied, we're gendered, we're integrated beings. It's all very good, God says. That's not bad, it's a good thing. Not it looks good, but that it is good. There's a purpose to all of this. And to understand it is very, very sensitive and and very, very tough today as we wade through some of the different conversations happening here. But just understand that before the church, and this is to you if you're a believer, before you think you have a right to talk about other people's morality, you need to start with anthropology. You need to start with who somebody is before you start talking about what they're doing or not doing. And often we've put the cart before the horse and gone after the world for what they're doing and not doing when they don't even share the same identity in anthropology that we do. Their identity is not rooted where our identity is. There must be a way that we can approach people who are wading through the difficulties and brokenness of that and approach them and listen before we speak. That's the heart of our church. That's the heart of us as followers of Jesus. And listen, we can't get into that now. We can't apply this to LGBTQ identities or same-sex attraction or the complexities of trans and intersex people. We can't do that here. That is a very sensitive and nuanced discussion, but we will have it, okay? But just so we're clear, just so we don't have any qualms about this or any misperceptions about this, Reach Montreal will always strive to be a safe and loving community for people from all walks of life. Yes, even them. Whatever the them category for you is. Even them. All walks of life. Regardless of past or present beliefs, lifestyle or orientation. Why? Because we will invite all people from all walks of life, to the same good news of Jesus Christ. Celebrating that we are equally sinful, equally sinful, yet infinitely loved more by God than we can ever imagine. And some of the most unreached people in our culture today wouldn't even want to be here because they don't think that that's the message that they're gonna hear. And you know why? Because most of the time they don't. And this is not a criticism for us, Reach, because I know many of us, me personally, we have dear friends who, di- who don't land here, who are walking openly in different types of relationships that we're, we're waiting through. But guess what we're doing? We're getting them to our dinner tables. We're getting them on our sofas. They're not comfortable coming here maybe, but we're, we're finding other spaces and contexts to love them, to show them that, that we are all broken and all more infinitely loved by God than we can even fit in our three and a half pound brain, amen? So just so you understand our heart and posture, okay? Come back in the winter and we'll address all of this and how it trickles down, all right? The second verse Jesus turns to is uh, Genesis 2, 24, and now it's getting into marriage. So he starts with identity, image bearers. Then he gets to how does that work out in romance and sexuality and marriage? And he says, the man will leave his father and mother. In Hebrew, fellas, fellas, in Hebrew, that's a command. You will leave the basement, and your Xbox, and your pajamas, and your PlayStation, and you will leave your mommy and your daddy, and you will go out and become the type of man that God would want to entrust one of his daughters to. You will. And we will help you do that, lovingly and truthfully, to do that. Right from the beginning, we see servant leadership in the man half of the image bearer, that that you will do that. And then you will go and you will hold fast to your wife. You will get her and you will not let her go through all of your selfishness, but it will be permanent. It'll be passionate and you will become one with her. There will be protection and safety and acceptance and love and hospitality and community and friendship and romantic love all wrapped up there. No, I won't, I won't do it. Let's keep going. The biblical picture here that we see is in the first couple, in the first marriage, in the first pages of scripture, that it is one man and it is one woman in an exclusive, holistic, whole life integration devoted to each other and bound by covenant. Covenant is the key word. Now, I know we lost this because we're not Old Testament often. Covenant is extremely different than contract, it's not a court document and a piece of paper that says your names and now all you share a name. That's, that's not this. It's a holistic integration of two whole persons, two complex whole persons, each made up of very different emotional and relational and personal things, becoming one. That one flesh in Hebrew is a fusing. It's that two things were distinct and then they became one and you can't even tell the difference anymore. They're so interwoven and so integrated that two people become one integrated whole. And this is doing nothing less than pointing to the Trinity. That there's distinction in the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit, but there is oneness because their nature, character, and love is completely indistinguishable from each other. You can't tell them apart anymore, although they are distinct persons. That they are the God, Head, God, one God, three persons fully integrated. That's the image and ideal for marriage. And I think also we're set up for failure today, trying to go from living life doing me to then doing us. And Raquel and I have had the privilege of just counseling many young couples, marrying them and then walking them through that. It's just amazing over and over again. It's like, man, yeah, I thought it was gonna be easier to like go from just being selfish to not. You're like, oh, hmm. Yes, it's very difficult. You can't go from living life, having your entire life be told that it's about you to then getting into a marriage and it being about us. Like you are destined to fail. So the picture of marriage is not that. It's not two individual autonomous people becoming one. It's oneness happening and being invited into friendship and community to be represented by and celebrated with sexual intimacy. Sex in the Bible is what God gave to marriage to say, I belong completely, exclusively, and permanently to you. And when we use sex for anything other than that, no surprise, when we try to make it say something else other than that, it fails us, and it damages us, and it hurts ourselves and others. And what's ironic about this in our culture is that our culture simultaneously overvalues sex as if it's a good God to build our life on, but it also over-sexualizes marriage. As if the bedrock of a healthy marriage is like Cirque du Soleil sex. Talk to any couple who has been married longer than 15 years, and I'll tell you one of the last things they'll tell you about what has had them survive a healthy marriage is sex, then talk to a couple over 50 years married, and they'll be like, no. That is a very small component, a good component, a wonderful, enjoyable component to a much more complex picture of marriage, amen? So biblically, we have to be honest about this because what our culture does is it isolates one dimension of sexuality, the physical part, which leads to hookup culture and Tinder and all of that, that really we are just highly evolved animals and we just kinda bump up against each other. That's all it is. So we take one dimension of sexual intimacy, the physical part, and we remove it and kinda like cut it away from all the other parts, emotional, biological, psychological, relational, and spiritual. God put it there to express and celebrate all of those things. I saw a Rolling Stone article, old one, long time ago. It said, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. That story about sexuality is failing us at alarming rates and leaving people absolutely done and damaged and dusted in ways that we can never imagine. That's failing us it's not the Christian sex ethic that's failing us. It's not the archaic stuff of the Bible that really repressed us. It's when we try to live a life building an identity on anything but God who gave us the gift of romance and sexuality. So where does Jesus end? He acknowledges that that's failing us. He acknowledges that the ideal is not divorce. He acknowledges all of what is spoken about in scripture. And he says, let no one separate, no one period. No comma, no explanation, no footnote, no get out clause. He just says period. Now if you're uncomfortable with that, I am too. Because I can start to think of reasons why, well, I don't know, there's a footnote, isn't there? Like there's an asterisk. But Jesus just, said in all, all, like no uncertain terms, let no man, no person separate something that God has put together. It's very radical. Jesus is here advocating in the strongest terms for the health and permanence of marriage and a covenant between men and women, even through tough times. In culture today, we don't approach marriage like this. We approach marriage as a contract between two parties and when one party breaks it or I'm not fulfilled, I'm out. We need to understand that marriage is actually just one sinner plus one sinner. If you take the math, that adds up to two, right? You with me on that? One sinner and another sinner deciding who they're gonna sin against most for the rest of their life. Like imagine that's in our vows. I just, I, I commit to just sin against you so much. I, I mean, I mean, so much more than anyone else in my life, actually. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sin all over the place. <laughs> Not intentionally or maliciously, but we have to understand that marriage is the context where the best of us comes out and also the worst of us comes out. And that's the intention of it. That It is where we're gonna sin against each other and then practice grace, love, forgiveness the benefit of the doubt tenderness patience patience and patience or not or not because if we just have an exit clause that's not that's not what i'm going to come in to my marriage thinking And the myth that like, oh, if only I could meet that someone, life would get so much better. I'm just talking to, to singles now or, or unmarried in any category. That's partially true. Things can get much better. Marriage is great. It is. One of the greatest gifts in my life is my marriage. Not because of me, but because of the amazing woman that I happened to figure out how to get. I don't know how that worked. But, but marriage really does just double the amount of sin and brokenness in your life. Brings out the absolute best and absolute, Worse than you. So listen, single people, unmarried, if you're selfish now, you'll be worse married. If you're insecure now, wait until you're married. Insecurities will come up that you didn't even know were there. You're just like, thank you for pointing that out, love of my life. <laughs> if you're greedy now, you will be more greedy, isolated, and less generous when you're married. So be careful not to idealize, like if only I could meet Prince Charming or Princess charming s That was terrible. It's not true. It's a myth and it doesn't check out. And this is why the biblical vision for marriage is self-giving service of the other constantly. It's mutual submission. We don't have time. Go read Ephesians 5 this week, okay? We gotta finish, baby, okay? Go read Ephesians 5. Mutual submission and service is, is an expression of our service to Christ and humility. Now we love that word submission in our culture, don't we? I submit to no one at no time whatsoever except myself. It's like, well, marriage is gonna suck. You are not gonna enjoy marriage whatsoever because it is about mutual submission. It is about you understanding how selfish you are and how the last thing on your priority list often is to serve your spouse. And it's constantly brought up to show you how selfish you are. And the the biblical vision is mutual self-giving service of another. And much of the gender role war that we have in culture is... Pinned on selfish, sinful behavior. Not a biblical ideal. Are you with me on that? Like so much of like, well, I won't do that when I'm married. So first of all, sweetie, get married. And then you can figure out how that's gonna show up. No, my wife will never. It's like, a wife doesn't even wanna marry you. Like figure that out first. Then work out the gender roles in your own household because biblically that's never said. It's like, here's mutual submission and service. Now figure it out. So, so much of what we end up arguing about in the church or outside of the church of like, gender this, gender roles that, traditional family norm, It's based on sinful, selfish behavior that we're like, let's not do that. It's like, I agree. Let's not be chauvinistic jerks. Amen. I'm all for it. Let's not be entitled selfish brats. Amen. God agrees. So let's just be very careful, all right? Let's go. Let's finish. Come on, baby. We can do this. Last Verse. It's easy to miss this. He sits with his disciples and he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now here's why this is crazy. Jesus is setting it up and did you see the equal playing field he just set up there? He says it goes both ways. In a culture where men ran around like crazy and were mass adulterers using women whenever they wanted and then just writing a certificate of divorce and sending them out, Jesus started with, fellas, if you do this, adultery. And you know what that means? Adultery is punishable by death. And all the disciples are like, skirt, that's radical. That is a radical thing to say. And so he's taking exploitation of women and he's like, nope, not in my kingdom, not not in my culture where the kingdom of God is expanding and there's equal value, dignity and worth for all people everywhere, regardless of gender, regardless of lifestyle, regardless of belief. That's a kingdom principle, not a Darwinian one, baby. And he's, he's stressing that. He's saying this goes both ways. Men, you don't get a loophole, is what he's saying. Super offensive at the time. Super offensive because men wouldn't actually even allow their wives to divorce them and then they would just throw them away when they were done with them. Jesus is saying, no, 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 adultery. You did that. If you divorce your spouse, not for adultery, it's you who's guilty of adultery. Radical, radical. Then... He says, if she divorces her husband, that wasn't even allowed. That wasn't even legal. Jesus just broke the law to give them a higher law. To say that in in biblical law, according to the kingdom of God, that if she also divorces her husband, which isn't even allowed. So their categories are just blown. He's advocating for women's voices. He's advocating for the abused and the misused and women who are treated like property and objectified by men. He's fighting for equality and female empowerment and their equal worth and value in marriage, not advocating for divorce. And this text has been used to the exact opposite of what Jesus is using it for. To shame women as divorcees or keep them in abusive marriages because you must not get divorced. And Jesus is coming and speaking against all of that with his prophetic and perfect kingly voice. So, some marriages do end in divorce, right? How do we deal with that? Divorce does happen. Divorce has happened in this room. We've been a part of that. We've been, we've been affected by divorce. Hear me very clearly. There are times when no matter what someone does to try to save a marriage, a marriage doesn't survive and it dies. Okay? So no shame or guilt in this room whatsoever. That is not actually what Jesus is even doing here. Divorce is admitting that a marriage is dead. Now, with saying that, I have seen God do resurrection miracles in marriages that were proclaimed dead. I've seen people get a divorce, walk away, live a whole other life, and then come back and get remarried to each other, right? Because God can do that. There is a healing that God's heart always is reconciliation, repentance, and healing. Always. That's the ideal. But in the event that that cannot happen, sometimes a marriage dies. So it begs the question when is divorce permitted? What would be our kingdom case law on this? Don't have time to do this in detail, but there are a few things in the New Testament that are made clear. One is that if there is sexual infidelity involved, there is a breach of the marriage covenant. And if there is unrepentant, unrestored, Sexual impropriety, the marriage could die. Matthew 19 of this same text adds that line here. It says, except for sexual immorality. What's interesting about sexual immorality is that it's not just going and cheating on your spouse. It's the New Testament word, it's the Greek word porneia, which is where we get, you know the word, right? And that means all sexual impropriety, not just adultery, but just continual emotional lust towards another, addiction to pornography, whatever it is, that, that all of that can, can kill a marriage. We should take it with the utmost seriousness. The second case that we see in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about valid and invalid reasons why a marriage might not survive. He gives some examples, um, like a non-believing spouse, for instance, you're married to an unbeliever. Now often we'll t- take that as like, well, I, I can just go marry an unbeliever. It's like, well, the Bible's pretty clear, bad idea. That's like polygamy, right? Like everyone's like, where? show me in the Bible where polygamy is a bad idea because I think having a harem of women would be a great idea. And you're like, no, 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 you missed the point. I can't point you to a verse where polygamy is bad, but I can show you every single story of polygamy in the Bible and guess how it ends, disaster. And God's like, bad idea, not, not, not what I designed. Right, Same thing here for a non-believing spouse. Don't walk in and be like, but they don't love Jesus yet and we have totally different values and ethics on everything and then I'm gonna have to beg my spouse to pray with the kids even though they don't believe in Jesus because they think Jesus is like the fairy godmother. Say, well, don't do that. What Paul's talking about is people who were not saved and one of them got saved after they were married. And he actually says, valid reason, Valid reason for divorcing in a marriage like that is abandonment. Invalid reason, the fact that your spouse is an unbeliever. He actually encourages, stay with the unbelieving spouse because it is through your tenderness and gentleness and love of Christ that they can be saved. And I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that trivially at all. That is a very heavy burden to carry. And as Nancy shared her story, we carry that burden together. We carry that burden together. You're not alone in that. And there's a third thing pointed out in scripture and that is abuse. Physical, verbal, sexual, or emotional abuse. Taking a verse like this and telling abused men or women, because it happens both ways, but especially women, that they must stay in a marriage because the Bible says so, is itself abusive you've been paying attention in the last couple years of abuse cases being covered up and no, no, just stay with him, sweetheart. Pray for him. And not calling the police and putting these boneheads in jail, which legally we should be doing. We're not doing a good job at this in the church. We need to do a better job. Those are all valid reasons why a marriage can die sometime, but here's the point. Here's the point Jesus is making, then we're done. God's heart for marriage is always, only and continually reconciliation. Repentance and healing without exception. No, but what if, no, 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 even in that case, the most gnarly, gritty, dirty, nasty, abusive relationship, I've seen God resurrect them. I've seen God heal them. I've seen God reconcile enemies and make them friends. That's always his heart. Now, does this always happen? No, that's not always the outcome. Is it God's preferred outcome? Yes. That's the point Jesus is making. So church, we need to think deeply about this stuff. We need to do a good job making spaces for single and unmarried people, for widows and widowers, for the divorced. And we need to make sure that we never have a space where unmarried means unwanted, where there's a second-class citizen dichotomy here. We need a diversity of this because here's what's really important. Most discussions on singleness and not being married focus on what single people don't have. We need to focus on where they are now and who they are today and let God worry about what he's gonna do with the rest of their future romance and, and relationships. God's gonna take care of that. Many of us see singleness as a problem to be solved or get out of. But what if we understood it as life is happening right now and we're called to be faithful with the season that we have right now. God always blesses present obedience church, always. So let me leave you with this. Galatians 3, Paul is unpacking this to the church in Galatia. In chapter three, and he just talks about the beauty of the gospel. And he says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. All of us, regardless of relationship status. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. And you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to not what you have done and your status, but promise because God always delivers on his promise. So in those verses, you and I could easily insert single, married, unmarried, divorced, virgin, not a virgin, insert all of it and say, in Christ, we have our identity in him and all of that is eclipsed by the grace and beauty of who we are in Christ Jesus. And that's the kind of gospel we get to celebrate that we get to live in Christ as a new reorientation of who our life belongs to. Now we get to celebrate that and live that out in community because that's what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't just change what we do. The gospel first changes who we are and who our life belongs to, amen? And then it changes what we do. So let's extend that same grace to ourselves, our same grace to one another, and that same grace to people who have not yet experienced the power and grace of this gospel. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, these are heavy, complicated, layered issues to work through, especially in 55 minutes. But we ask for more grace. However we needed to hear this this morning, whatever we need to take away from it, I pray that you would apply it fresh to our heart and mind. I pray for all of the marriages in the room that you would continue to call each of us to a mutual service of the other. That we would represent your laying down of your life for us in our marriage as well. Not perfectly because we can't, but by your power that we will continue to stumble towards that posture in our marriages. And I pray for everybody else, Lord, in the room who is not yet married or is unmarried for whatever reason it is, whether they've experienced divorce or, or brokenness or hurt or pain or abuse, that spirit, you are the comforter, that you are more present, not just around us, but in us than we could ever imagine. And I pray today that you would speak comfort, safety, love, and security to our heart where we need to know it and that we would continue to have our eyes drawn to you so that we would build our identity in who you are, not who we are, not what we have or don't have or what has happened to us in the past or what we have done, but that it would be in you and what you have done and we would live in light of that. We ask all of this in the name of your son, in Christ's powerful name, amen.